So, if you like foreign prison stories, I'll tell you what, I've read quite a few books and interviewed quite a few people who've been in foreign prisons, but Venezuela is a whole new level. Natalie here gets to the prison, and there's a bunch of guys on the roof with guns. Now, I'm quite sure you're thinking they would be guards. They were the prisoners. And that's just going in. Just wait till you hear what happens when she gets in. I'm almost finished reading Sentence to Hell, Natalie Welch. Available worldwide on Amazon. And links to the book and all of Natalie's stuff are in the description box below this video. If you want to check that out. But before we go there... Thanks for flying in from Spain to do this. No, you're welcome. Thanks for inviting me, Sean. And how the hell did you end up in a Venezuelan prison? Oh, gosh. Um, I always dreamt, as a kid, I dreamt of having an easy international job where I would be flying all over the world, but I didn't think, you know, because I was young, exactly what that kind of job would be. Yeah. And um, at the time that I ended up flying to Venezuela, um, I'd been probably I'd been probably doing things for a few years beforehand, um, different routes, different um, places, and thought that I was invincible. You know, I was I was very young. I'd grown up in a children's home. I didn't understand consequences of actions. I had. Um, a crippling drug addiction. What was it like growing up in a children's home? Fun. Fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was fun. I got up to some absolute... Um, there was no... Like I said, there was no consequences to actions. So, you know, I got expired from school and then the next day I think I got to Tempin Bowling or to Alton Towers. I lived in a place with, you know, 50 other children and life at home was quite difficult so all of a sudden I had this freedom where um, you could kind of do what you want because you couldn't get grounded and if you if they said you were going to be if you had to be picked up at half past nine and you weren't there and you phoned them up at three o'clock in the morning they had to so for it you know it wasn't so you were running rings around them yeah basically is that how you got introduced to drugs Uh, I think it was just the the mentality that I had um, and I was intrigued by that lifestyle and then as I started to get a bit older um, where I was not dealing or understanding the, ch- the children's home hadn't really guided me through the the things that they were supposed to guide me through. Um, my daughter's dad actually was my social worker um, so that experience... My daughter's dad was my social worker let me just come to grips with that okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, um, and I, I didn't, hadn't processed those feelings and those emotions properly. So as I started to kind of hit my kind of like 15, 16, those kind of teens with all this kind of crazy emotions going on that I didn't understand, um, then I turned to drugs because you're looking for, you know, escapism. How old were you when you got pregnant? 16. Okay. So did you then get onto weed first? It was hash first. Hash. Yeah, hash at 
13, 14, I think. Yeah. Then it was amphetamines. Yeah. Um, I find this guy, I was walking up town and I, I find this guy and um, I asked him to get me some bass. And he got me a gram of bass and I didn't know what to do with it. And I asked him how to take it. And he said, oh, you just put it in a Rizla and you, and you bomb it, you swallow it. I didn't know you didn't put it all in a Rizla. You know, he didn't say, so I just put the whole gram in a Rizla and got on the bus and then went back to the children's home. <laughs> <laughs> so people who don't know what bass is watching this, can you explain? It's amphetamine. Yeah. Yeah, it's amphetamine. It's, um, it's, it's a, a kind of gateway here to the next kind of steps on from that and the people as well that are kind of associated around that are misfits people that have that I felt connected to after feeling so disconnected from the world my whole life you know in school and at home and I finally found this kind of world where I felt like I fitted in because we're all very kind of similar in that kind of world that's why i felt in the rave scene in arizona we were all just misfits like yeah fitting together yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. so the drug use escalated yeah um escalated then the it was the rave scene um when that hit hard in the kind of mid 90s like late 90s you had like brunel's in swindon that was smashing like the like the garage and then you had um, gold diggers and chippenham that was doing like hardcore and you had the dreamscapes and the obsessions and the odysseys and the how to scout so what year was this 97, 98. When it it was all just starting. Just starting and the ecstasy scene then and the feelings of euphoria and love that came along with that. And it just exploded, you know, I think all over the country, not just where where I was, you know, and it was just a massive feeling of unity and, and love. And so I just fell into that, to that world. And then, um, I had a a boyfriend who I was madly in love with, but who wasn't in love with me. And we separated. And in the area that I was living, there was a, a big crack problem. Um, people from Jamaica had, had come over. Um, gangs from Jamaica had come over to where I was living, to the time that I was living. And they were bringing people over and just flooded the place with crack and when I split up with my boyfriend my social life went with that so I became quite an easy target young vulnerable Mm. alone um already involved with with drugs I was just a a very easy target and then without even realizing I've got a you know a a crack addiction Mm. at 16 years old And you've got a kid as well, yeah. and you've got all that pressure on you, and you're just a kid yourself. I'm just a kid myself that doesn't know what I'm doing. No, not really any family support, not really many good friends at that mm. point. You know, it's just it was um, it was a difficult it was a difficult time. So I fell in quite deeply into this world. Everyone was so friendly, you know, giving me free drugs and inviting me around all the mm. time, you know, reeling me in. You know, because like I said, I was I was I was vulnerable then, and they were predators. And then, um, you know, they started to offer me opportunity and, and opportunities to make, you know, money. And I was getting to the point where I'd had enough 
I, you know, I'd had enough, but I had no control. You know, I couldn't stop myself. I was hating myself, but I couldn't stop myself. So I looked at it as an opportunity to get away as well, because if I wasn't in my town and I was in another country, then I didn't do it. So by opportunities, let's just clarify, smuggling missions. Yes. What was your first smuggling mission? Um, It was from Hook to Harwich. Um, I can't remember how many keys it was. Um, The people that I were working for, they had a, a quite a big operation and they'd have planes landing in from wherever to Amsterdam. And then those people would get picked up and taken to like a flat in Rotterdam. And then my job was to get to Rotterdam and then I'd get taped up. It would take about four or five people mm. to do it. I'd have to stand there with the bricks, like maybe about, about that size. These kilos of coke? Yes. Like a brick there, brick there, brick there, brick there, and then bricks there. And then people would have to hold them on while someone would like walk round me and with the with the gaffer tape, with the super strong gaffer tape, gaffer taping it to me. And then I'd come back on the back on the boat through the hook to Harwich route. First time you did the mission, were you what was going through your head? Were you scared? Not at all. Were you high? No. No, not at all. Um I'd had a great time because I had got away from drugs. Even though I had, you know, all these kilos of, you yeah. know, drugs on me, I hadn't taken any drugs. So I had clear, you know, when I went back with the headset of like, brilliant, you know, I've been here for a week now, uh, you know, I've I've got off it. And then as soon as I got back and got paid. Oh. <laughs> Let's time. <laughs> You know, with all the, you know, just one. And how much did they pay you to transport those kilos? Four grand. Four thousand. Yeah, yeah. Wow, okay. So that mission was successful. So did that give you confidence? Yeah, I did a few of them because because I was confident. Yeah. Um, That's probably how I got away with it because I just, you know, walked through not even... There was n- there there was no other option in my mind, you yeah. know. It was just that's what's going to happen. I'm going to go through and I'm going to go past, and every- it will be fine because what else can happen, you know? Yeah. Everything's always going to be fine. <laughs> so um, yeah, and that then that built up my confidence. Then I started meeting other people, and they were going to other countries, you know, more exotic com- countries. And by then I was getting a little bit bored of Amsterdam and Rotterdam and I'd started, I'd find people in Amsterdam where I could get drugs. Yeah. So now in Amsterdam, I'm not getting away from the mm. drugs and I'm taking drugs. So I was like, right, I need to get out of Amsterdam. So started asking for other opportunities. So who are the people you connected with to do the foreign opportunities that were outside of Amsterdam? So I'm um, there. That was um, it was a Moroccan crew. There was two crews. It was a Moroccan crew in um, Amsterdam, mm. and it was this um, Jamaican guy in England. And initially, I met him because I was supposed to be setting. I was supposed to be setting up a robbery. We were gonna. We were gonna rob him. So I got introduced to him. <laughs> I got in. <laughs> when you say we were gonna rob him, you and who? Um, the people that asked me to to meet him, the the people that the drug the local Jamaican drug dealers, so they're like yardy gangster types. Yes, exactly yeah. what they were, exactly yardies. And they said to me, you know, that they knew this guy and that he was looking for someone to do some smuggling. 
and would I go to London and meet him and would I get some information and then sort everything out and then when everything came through you know they'd come down I'd give them all the information and they'd like rob mm. everything but when I went down for the meeting with the guy I thought that his business proposition was was a was a better <laughs> business proposition than robbing him what did he propose that like taking that was it when he was saying about you know going to Holland he treated me nice he took mm-hmm. me out and behaved me all my and then when I went to Holland the people that I got picked up there um, by these Moroccan people and they took me shopping and took me to restaurants and they were very friendly and very nice and I just thought I'm much better off <laughs> working and doing this for them. So his crew they, really took good care of you. Yeah, 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 yeah. They, yeah, they did. And what was proposed next? Um, after that, I did. I went to Jamaica, but that wasn't for them. That was with the yardies that I was doing stuff with in the UK. So what happened in Jamaica? Um, I didn't bring anything back. Um, so I had a great free holiday. It was brilliant um, because there were there were rival rival kind of yardy gangs in the in the town and the the one kind of boss of the one gang had got wind that I was over there um and so the the yardies that I was working for heard that he'd got wind and they were like he's gonna grass her up mm. he's gonna grass her up so mm. I just had a nice free holiday in Jamaica when I came back I got um ragged up in the airport taken to hospital x-rayed my bags they were absolutely convinced that i had something and i didn't so we had snitched yes yeah yeah so then that gave me even more confidence (laughs) 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 because i've come through and i'm like ha 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 (laughs) 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 you didn't get me (laughs) so what was your next mission um i didn't like working for them because i get i got left alone in jamaica um, and I wasn't used to that. I was used to being, you know, picked up and treated nicely. And, you know, I just got left to my own devices in Jamaica. So I decided that I didn't want to do stuff um, with them and that I wanted to do some more stuff with this um, this this Dutch crew and this, you know, London Yardie guy. Um, so I went to him and said that I wanted, you know, I'd been to Jamaica and I was getting, you know, I'd done Holland and I'd been doing it a little bit. So I was starting to think they're going to start recognising me on this hook to Harwich, you know, route. And I'm quite young. So let's change and do something different. I want to be like them, you know, (laughs) the ones that we're picking up. Um, So that's when he offered me the the Venezuela job. (laughs) So what was supposed to happen in Venezuela, if it went smoothly. Well, do you know what's mental, Sean? First of all, my boss came with me from London. My boss came with me to Amsterdam. And we went out the night before the plane and got smashed and missed the first plane mm, to Venezuela. So that was an omen. So then he booked the next flight and I was at the airport and he came with me and when I was at the airport, I said to him, oh, I've got a really, you know, I've got a funny, you know, I feel funny. And he told me not to go. He mm. said, don't do it. 
I said, and I said, what? He said, if you've, you know, if you've got a funny feeling and you've always been signed, don't, you know, don't worry about it. And I said, but you've paid for the flights and the hotel. And he's like, don't worry about that. And um, me being, you know, young, dumb and full of mm. fun, <laughs> just gave it all the Billy Big Balls. And was like, nah, ignored all those, all those signs, all those gut feelings, you know, mm. the universe screaming at me not to do oh. it and not understanding that. Just ignored it all and, and went and got on the, on the plane to Venezuela. And... Um, what was supposed to happen was there was supposed to be someone wait. I thought it was going to be similar to Holland, that there'd be people waiting there for me and looking after me. There was no one there. I didn't know where I was going, mm. what I was doing. I had to phone my guy in. In he was in back in London by then. He was confused. Eventually, after waiting for hours, someone turned up, picked mm. me up, dropped me off at the airport, and then I didn't see them again until the day that I was going back on the plane with this when they turned up with the well the night before they turned up with the suitcase so you're um laying low then ready to come back with the suitcase yeah guide us through that day it felt wrong from the moment from the moment it felt wrong the whole time I was there the fact that I'd been left alone I, you know I hadn't been taken anywhere they hadn't paid me any attention they kept their distance it just it didn't feel right but again I just didn't understand these these feelings and these signs and then when they came and brought me my suitcase they came to the hotel that I was staying in in Margarita and they brought me my suitcase and all I could smell was glue Mm. And I thought this, even, you know, I just, I ignored every single warning sign that was out there. I could smell the glue where they, because it had a false bottom and they'd put the drugs in the false bottom and in the false top and then sealed it all with glue. Mm. And I kept the suitcase open all night long, you know, wafting it and spraying deodorant and trying to get smell rid of the smell of the glue. Mm. And... I said to the guys, you know, about the smell and they were like, no, no, it's OK. Don't worry about it. It's it's all sorted. They're in on it, at, you know, at the airport. Oh, that one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that old chestnut. <laughs> They're in on it. You know, they know they've been paid off. You know, there's nothing to worry about. Um, you know, they're going to pull you to one side, but when they pull you to one side, it's just to, you know, get you out of the way to get your stuff through. So don't panic and don't worry. And mm. and even though still it didn't feel right, I, I don't know why. I still just, I don't know, ignored these, 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 these signs, you know, because I wasn't frightened, mm. but I just... I don't know, my, my mind, brain just hadn't thought of that there was ways out of it when there obviously was, you know, you can just say no and at you've any got, point. And you've got your baby daughter with you at this point as well. I have, yeah. So she's heading to the airport with you. Yeah. And how old was she at that? Three. Three. Yeah. Wow, so what happens when you get to the airport? So I'm in the departure lounge waiting to board the plane and... I see a group of National Guardia come in and next to me there's a, um, a family, yeah, mother, child and, you know, husband. And uh, I saw the National Guards go up to them and ask them for their passports and I knew that it was me that they were looking for. Mm. I knew. 
I knew, but I thought it's okay. This is all part of the plan. Mm. I was told this was happening. You know, don't don't panic. Yeah. But I was shitting myself, you know, because it just. But trying to hold it mm. together, so they um, approached me at the at my table, took me into an office, and my suitcase was there on a on a table, mm. and that's when I thought, fuck, I'm sure. You know, and then I thought maybe they're just, you know, hope. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big, you know, hoper <laughs> <laughs> and prayer. You know, <laughs> and then the the guard pulled out a knife, and that's when I knew I was fat. Pulled out a what? A knife. A knife. Pulled out a knife, and I was like, Shh, this is not supposed to be happening and just mm. put the knife in the suitcase and pulled it across and pulled the knife out and that's when I knew I was mm. like this is definitely not part of the plan and this is you know and you don't speak the language not a word so what are they saying to you when <laughs> they discover clue. the coke not a clue are they screaming coca. at you anything coca coca, <laughs> coca perico <laughs> but I didn't know what perico was but coca coca yeah <laughs> I, was like, I knew what that word meant <laughs> I figured that one out how's your daughter reacting at this point she's fine because she doesn't understand you know um, mm. I'm reassuring her you know letting her know that you know everything's okay it's all right they're just checking you know our bags and you know she's she hasn't got a, a, a clue what's going on and mm. i'm not showing the panic that i'm feeling because mm. i'm my mind i'm thinking that hopefully they'll hurry up and deal with it because the plane's leaving in an hour mm. and <laughs> and that somehow or another <laughs> they'll get on the plane so you're in shock? Absolutely. Complete shock. Yeah, I couldn't... My mind just couldn't process what was going on. Couldn't comprehend it for at all. So did they have to then officially arrest you? I think so. I, I imagine that's what's what happened. They called a... One of the airline attendants. Um, I think she was Dutch to translate. Um, and she told me that I was in trouble... And that I would go, I wouldn't be getting my plane, mm. um, and that I'd be going to jail for ten years, and that she would um, organise, she would phone my embassy for me and organise a, a phone call um, to, to my embassy so that they could explain to me, you know, what was going to happen, and mm. she'd kind of talk me through the process a little bit, but. I wasn't really hearing it, you know. I was just like, this is just a bad dream. How did she just say 10 years like that? They're so used to it. My embassy did exactly the same thing. When I spoke to them on the phone, they were very matter-of-fact. There was no hope there. They were, they were like, right, this is what's going to happen. We can't help you. Um, there's your don't even start about human rights because pff, there's nothing we can do about that you're gonna go to the police station you're and then you're gonna go to court after a while you'll get sentenced to 10 years and you're gonna do 10 years in jail and we can't get you back to england because you know no no trying to comfort me or very very matter of fact of this is what's going to happen we'll send someone to come and see you tomorrow so getting into this mission, had you any idea if you got caught you would do 10 years? Not a clue. So when you're hearing this 10 years and you're hearing it again from the embassy, how's that making you feel? I didn't believe it. 
you're not believing it no not no it's no too, no it's too intense it, yeah it's just it's i think that's how i managed to my mind managed to deal with it you know up until the last minute i was still expecting to, it was like a bad dream you know i'll wake up in a minute and i'll be on the you know I'll wake up and i'll be on the plane yeah you know so you're in denial absolutely 100 yeah. percent, not comprehending any of it so did they separate you from your daughter at some point not straight away, not that night. That night they kept me in the police, not the police station, it was like a a, a, national, a Guardia National Guards kind of office, which was next to the airport mm-hmm. um, with my daughter. They handcuffed me to a radiator, which is quite bizarre because it's really hot in Venezuela, so I don't know why they've got radiators, <laughs> you know, so I, th- I find that quite odd. And they let my daughter stay with me and I was still trying to, you know, let her know that everything was, you know, okay and it was all right and, you know, everything would be okay. And she was fine, you know, because I wasn't showing, I wasn't getting distressed. And then the next day, they somebody came and said that I was going to be taken to the police station and that um, they were going to take my daughter and put her in a um, children's home until something was sorted out. She couldn't come with me to the police station, but until something was sorted out for travel arrangements for for her to, to get back to the UK. Getting split from your daughter then, the realisation that must have tore you apart. That was when it really hit like when she went and then I was being, you know, that's when it, the re- the reality of the situation really started to like kind of hit home and me realise like this was actually serious and this was really, this was really happening. Did you have to go in front of a judge? Not straight away. Um, I don't think, I can't remember. I don't think I did straight away. No, I got took to the police. I'm pretty sure I got took to the... God, so long ago now. I can't remember if I, may, I might have been taken to court and remanded to the police station or whether I just got taken from there. I think I got taken from there to the police station and at some point I think I went to court and they sent me back to the to the police station and I was there for a few months. What's the conditions like at the police station? Oh my gosh, horrendous. <laughs> How many people in a cell? Oh, about 20 in a room. I know the cameras can't see the whole size of this room, but it's probably from what you can see from here to here, it's the same on the other side of the camera. It's probably about a cell this size with about 20 um Venezuelan hardcore criminals in there all speaking Spanish. <laughs> There's and no you show up. <laughs> yeah. Oh god, they loved it, you know, something different. There is no um toilet. There's no beds, there's no furniture, there's just, you know, mattresses on the floor. There's um, a bucket with a bag in to have a, you know, uh, number two in, in the corner when you need to have a shit in the room with 20 people. And there's like a little sinkhole. So if you've done it, you know, you take the bag out of the bucket and then you do a pee and then you can pour the pee down the the hole. There's no light, it's dark, or it's disgusting. Did they feed you? 
Um, <laughs> they were supposed to. My, they don't provide food. The police station doesn't provide food, and the Spanish women that are in there, because it's a local jail, their families bring them food. Oh. Um, my consulate came to see me and gave the police money to buy to be able to buy me food, um, but they just kept the money. Mm. They didn't. Buy, they didn't buy me the food. They just kept. They just kept the money. So did you live off the scraps of others? Yeah, yeah. And what were they eating? Oh, mate, they were eating banging food. <laughs> they were eating like chicken and rice and peas and empanadas and yeah, because it was stuff you know their families yeah. that were cooking and and bringing into them. You know, yeah, yeah. they were bring, they were having banging food. Yeah. So, because I've been in like um, prisons with a lot of Mexicans and stuff, a lot of yeah. them didn't speak English. Yeah. Usually, you'll find one person to translate for you. Yes. Did you do that? There was one person, um, Latina. She was called. Um, she couldn't really, she could say fucky fucking. Um, she explained to me that when I got to, to the prison, you know, she, she had very broken English, you know, very few words, but she managed to explain to me that the prison was much better and there was lots of men and you were fucky fucky. <laughs> <laughs> So it's and I was thinking I can't be understand I you know I she I don't think she knows her English words properly and I can't be understanding this right but it was right. So there's a lot of uncertainty anxiety until you get sentenced because you're not quite sure what's going to happen to you. Um, when you got sentenced, how was the day of your sentencing? Um, I didn't have a clue what had happened really. I was I got. I was in prison by then. By the time I'd got sentenced, I'd been moved to the prison. What was the prison called? That one was San Antonio. Is that the one where the guys were on the roof? Yes. All right, well, let's, let's take us tell, take us in there your first day in there. How's oh, that? Oh, gosh. So when I'd been in Holland, in Amsterdam, I'd bought some, um, I'd bought some poppers. And I hadn't seen my suitcase since I got taken to the prison. And the the police handed me over to the National Guards with my suitcase, you know, with all my stuff in it, minus the Coke. And so they were going through my stuff at like a reception desk, you know, as they were checking me in. Um, you know, at this point, I don't think I knew that the the, the people on the roof weren't weren't guards. You know, I was just like, I was a bit surprised by their attire but you know it's just it's all a bit much to comprehend and and then the guards are going through my suitcase and they're going through my clothes this is two national guards I can't speak English again they can't speak Spanish there's no translator and they find this little bottle of poppers and they're you know they're like Eso, que eso? And so I, I'm figuring out that they're asking what it is. So I told them, you take the lid off it and you and you sniff, you know, sniff it. So the first, the first one took the lid off and sniffed it, but only a little bit. So I took it off him and I was like, no, like this. And I, so I did a big sniff of this poppers. And so he took it off me and did this big sniff of his poppers and he was like and then passed it to his to his mate to his national guard mate who did the same thing who was like 
and they put the lid on and gave it back to me. <laughs> gave it back to me and put it in my suitcase. So it was all very surreal, you know, and I instantly made quite a lot of friends with that little bottle <laughs> of poppers, which I don't think they've ever heard of in Venezuela. <laughs> It was um, the whole day was just completely surreal, but it was also a massive relief because I'd been in that police station for you know a long time. My skin had gone yellow. I'd lost a lot of weight. I'd been ill. I hadn't had access to medicine, and all of a sudden I get taken in this prison. And there's men walking around everywhere. There's palm trees everywhere. It was you know it 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 was like paradise compared to what I just you know came from but at that point I had no idea of what you're getting into yeah why had your skin gone yellow because I hadn't had any sun oh no sun yeah because I'd been in like I think it'd been like three and it was all just Mm. all dark not much food bad Mm. water um I wasn't that I had bad stomach because of the Mm. diet that I was having I just I wasn't I wasn't too very well So take us through how you arrive at your living quarters. So they took me through. So when you've got this entrance, you've got the men's side, which was to the right. And then you've got the women's side to the left. And then you've got another men's side just kind of like behind. So there were some English girls in there. So once the guards had checked me in, they got the English girls, gave me my suitcase and just, you know, told me to go. And the English girls walked me down this kind of corridor of this courtyard. And everyone there is clapping. Because I'm like fresh blood, you know. <laughs> so I'm walking down and there's like, I don't know, 99, you know, Venezuelan women there. And a few Dutch and they were going, yeah, gringa. And I don't know what else they were saying. I'm just there with my suitcase. They're all running at me trying to get through my suitcase and look at what I've got. What? <laughs> yeah, Stealing your stuff. Straight away, mate. They're trying to straight, straight, oh. straight away. They're on it. They're on it trying to. And I'm just like hanging on to it for dear life. <laughs> you know, legs on. Arms wrapped around it. You know, it's everything I've got in the world now. You know, my daughter's gone. This is my suitcase. Oh. It's everything. I was willing to die for it. You know. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and then I think it was also a test as well to see. You know, am I just gonna freak out and you know give up my stuff? And are you gonna walk all over me for ten years? Or you know. Because then afterwards they were all laughing and joking, and so I, I don't know. I think it's a kind of initi- initiation. It's like a heart check. Yeah, yeah. maybe. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And where where did you sleep then? So um, in a cell again, um, bigger than this one. Um, it was a lot better. Um, not like England cells. Um, there was probably about i don't know maybe 10 people 10 mm. girls in there um and it had toilets in there and there was beds in there and bits of furniture and it was partitioned off like um they'd made like wires i don't know if they did the same thing where you were where they'd put like wires across the ceilings with sheets hanging down so you could make your own little section 
within the room, you know. Yeah, so you well, had we were out. You couldn't hang anything. It was against the rules. And oh, was come it? In and just, even the towels drying, they just come in and tear them down. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So you, you, how many people in that cell? About 10 to 15, I think. And were they friendly to you? Um. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the... I had like a, a prep talk from the the English girls. Um, what advice did they give you? Uh, mixed advice. I was so confused because their advice was conflicting, you know. And they were telling me about the prison, and um, I couldn't. Be- I couldn't believe, you know. Even though they've been there five years, and even though Latina in the prison in the police station had also told me that the men had, you know, guns and pistolas, and I, you know, I, I was struggling to comprehend. And then they explained that the guys on the roof, you know, were, were prisoners. Um, I just thought they were like exaggerating, you know, trying to frighten me maybe or it's just too much for for a westerner to even to comprehend that you know it's just so even in the environment again it's just like they're they're exaggerating this you know um a little bit and the you know the advice was just like i said conflicting you know one minute it's like you know be hard and the next minute it's like you know just stay out of stay away and i was just like i'm just gonna have to figure this shit out for myself aren't i so you figuring things out for yourself you learned that the men's had different levels according to their wealth yeah it's a hierarchy so how can you describe the hierarchy so the tops there there's two sections of of men because they're from gangs that come from the streets, um, a bit like Bloods and Crips, you know. These gangs can't mix because they want to kill each other from the streets. So each section of the men has um, a boss, so they call him a prang. Um, and they're the ones that run the prison, not the governor, not the guards, not the, you know, screws. It's These are the ones that, that run the prison. The drug so, gang boss. Yes, yeah. So you've got the boss from each kind of gang. And then beneath him, you've got the number two, which is the lieutenant. And then there'll be, um, they were called a a carro, just like a a group um, of people that that are there to protect them if they need to go out of their area, you know, if they need to talk to the other prisoners in the other side or if they need to go down to the offices and talk to the director um and so the people that have money so if they're selling drugs in there or if they've got a business or they own a restaurant or they own a workshop um they don't have to do the shitty jobs but if you haven't got money um you have to go on guard you have to go and patrol the roof with the guns they've got like lookout points as well across the kind of field that have to be manned like 20 to make sure that that gang aren't going to try and come over and so if you've got money and it's your shift, you can because everyone has a shift to do. The guys, this is not the girls. So if you've got money, you just you know pay someone to do your shift for you. And if you haven't got money, then you have to do your shift, which is sitting there for you know, I don't know how many hours with a gun, waiting and looking and you know like a war zone. And how soon was it before shots were fired? First morning that I woke up. What happened? Um, and I got woken up um, by shots that were fired. And then about, I don't know, five minutes after that, an alarm. 
like um, you know, like the siren in for you know the when the bombs were coming in the war in London, and there's that siren. There's a siren like that that went off, and when the siren goes off, it means someone's been killed. And so this was being explained to me, and the Venezuelan Venezuelan women are freaking out because their husbands and their sons and their family are also in prison and they're involved in these, you know, gangs. You know, a little person's not going to get, you know, shot or killed or, you know, not unless they've done something stupid. It's it's the people that are involved in this. Um, so it's in the women's part. The door doesn't get opened. We can't come out whilst it's all being dealt with. And all the women um, are just traumatised, waiting to find out who it is. You know, has it? Is it their husband? Is it their son? You know, trying waiting to hear. You know, who's who's died. So that was the very first morning that I was there. I got woken up to that. <sighs> yeah. And did you see the aftermath of that, like the, a body or anything? I saw a lot worse than that. There was um, like a, a war type thing that went on for about three days and the National Guards wouldn't even come in for three days. They didn't come in. They didn't because the National Guards come in and do what's called numero every day, twice a day. Count. Yeah, they come in. You have to stand up a wall and they do count and they didn't come in for three days to do count. They didn't. It was out of control. The the one side blew up the Maxima with the grenades. The other side, <laughs> they, the Maxima just went, the gone. There was holes blown in the walls. And then there's like the gates where the office is where the infirmaria is, but that's right next to the Maxima, which has just been blown up. And all the um, screws have have locked themselves in the offices. (laughs) So all the gates are closed. So what they're doing is they're running where the hole is in the wall, where the guys are running out with dead bodies, carrying dead bodies with people that have been shot that are still alive there's a Jesus. couple of couple of stretchers there yeah. um but no one's the ambulance the ambulances the hospital wouldn't even come like mm. it was all over the news the ambulances wouldn't come they couldn't get into the infirmary so there's dead bodies on stretchers for two days three days so are you seeing any of this the, yeah all of it you've seen all of it all of it yeah so the first time you saw a dead body how did that make you feel it was that shock thing again, you know. Um, and uh, I think that's how my brain managed to just cope with it. Was uh, it, it? I couldn't really process what was happening, you know. It was just... And then it got to a point where it was kind of normal, these things happening. Guns there. going off, people Yeah, guns killed. going off, people getting killed. Um, you know, this period was quite extreme but it, it it was part of you know prison but it was part of prison life and you just had to what could you do I just had to f- deal with it and try you know and move away from where you could see this stuff you know and stay in the cells or stay in the you know courtyard and just you know try and try and stay away from it until it was over how were sex offenders dealt with in Venezuelan prison? Oh, they get killed. They get tortured and killed. Have you got any stories of that happening? Yeah, yeah. Um, the whole time I was there, 
homing saw two sex offenders. Um, the women are safe. We can we can all mix with the men and have you know relationships, sexual relationships, and you know people getting pregnant or whatever. And there's no fear of any of the women getting attacked by any of the prisoners because they'll get killed. You know there is a a a, a, a law there. You know so they, there's there's no, there's nothing to be frightened of in there for the women. Um, but a sex offender, I, I was in court once and I was downstairs and there was a sex offender that had been sentenced and the judge let his family come down to see him in the cells before he went to prison um, because she knew that by sentencing him to prison, you're sentencing them to death, you're giving them the death sentence because that's, you know, when you, there's no secret, what happens is the, the guards, the national guards... One group go back before the prisoners. They go back with all the paperwork and what the crimes are. And then the guards will go over to the prison bosses of where the sex offender is going to go to. And the guards will let the prison boss know that you've got, you know, I don't know, one Jose coming in this afternoon and he's a sex offender and this is his crime and this is what he's done. Um, And he'll get um, tortured for about three days. So that seems to be the standard kind of, you know, three days. And then he's um, given the opportunity to hang himself. When you say tortured, what do you mean? Um, beaten, burnt, like they'll hang him and just beat him, burn him. I, you know, I don't know the, we don't get to see all of that, but we get to see the, you know, the hanging afterwards. You get to see the hanging, that's yes, like a public... Yes, because it's, um, it's a very public, you know, show of, you know, this is this is what happens. So in the book there was one that came in and he didn't make it very long, did he? He didn't last very long, a sex offender. Didn't they just gun him down as soon as he came in? Whereabouts, do you know? I can't remember. Can't remember, yeah. It's sorry. One of them just came in. One got tortured, and then one, as soon as he came in, they they just they just shot him down. They just shot him down. They didn't even. They didn't even. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. You said there's a convict code whereby the women are respected, and if you lay your hands on a woman, death penalty. Yeah. And you can mix with the men. Yeah. So does that mean the women can go from the men's side and vice versa? Yeah. Yeah. All day long, we just get separated at. At night time, so the gates, unless there's a problem. So if the if the gang leader, like the prang, if he knows that you know there's an issue that needs to be dealt with, they keep the women away from it. So the the gang leader will go to the director and ask the director not to let the women out. Like you know, please can you not let the women out? tomorrow because there's you know some issues that we need to deal with so we'll know if we get up at eight o'clock in the morning and we can't get out then we know that there's someone's getting killed wow Mm. so is this the prison that you were at where the girls come in the women come in who are like the bad women no that's that's a a different one that's a different one what stories have i missed from this first prison then the party okay tell us about the party yeah um the after this period, this three days where this war had been going on, after that the guards came in and then they tortured the prisoners 
because they have to assert their authority and show, you know, the that they're in at the end of the day, you know, they're in control and this is the punishment for, you know, putting them to shame, really. Cause and what did they do to the prisoners? They made them lie down. It was boiling hot um, and they made them lie down um, on their stomachs all day from like nine o'clock in the morning till like nine o'clock at night um, on a concrete kind of tarmac surface um, whilst they were patrolling them all with swords. So that if anybody kind of, you know, tried to move, they'd get whacked, they'd get beaten, you know, the ringleaders um, would get a, a pretty severe um, a beating. Mm. Yeah, so um, tensions are are quite, you know, really high. People are upset. It's a very strange atmosphere. So to diffuse the tension and try and get the kind of order and the flow back... The main boss of the kind of like richer side organised a, a big party. <laughs> and you you can see the entrance from the women's bit. You can see the gate where all the all the cars and everyone like comes in. We just see this pickup truck coming in loaded with speakers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what's going on? You know? And then we get taken over to the men's side. They've set all the speakers up. Um, there's loads of miche, which is a uh, homebrew that they make, but it's not like, you know, cider, it's not like apple cider, you know, it's stuff that they've been distilling and buried underground and it's moonshine, basically. So there's like loads of moonshine around, there's loads of coke around, there's music on out of this big sound system that they've also managed to bring <laughs> a load of drugs and weapons in, we're concealed in within the, within the speakers because the guards <laughs> have been paid off. And we're playing volleyball against, you know, volleyball matches. And then after that, you know, and you've got a a prison guard next to you that you're, you know, having a drink with and and smoking a drink with and doing a a line with, you know. And it sounds glamorous and it sounds exciting, but it's to try and get rid of the trauma and to try and relax because otherwise it's just all going to kick off again and people need to let that you know release that kind of that pain somehow or another and try you know you create happy you create vibes with music don't you yeah yeah you create you know shamanic vibes and happy (laughs) vibes and and especially when you mix some moonshine in with the equation you know by the end of the day everything's all right so one minute there's like shootouts, murder, torture, and next thing they're next, all just getting drunk on moonshine and doing cocaine and <laughs> no, having a rave. Next thing it's a rave. Yeah. That's gonna just mess with your head. This thing it's, it just goes from one extreme to the, to other. the other. Yeah, absolutely insane. You said there was sexual relations between the males and the females. Yeah, like conjugal visits. They used to have those in some of the states, and I think you had to like. Um, coordinate the visit and there was a certain room yeah how was it in here so in the first prison that I was in um, there you didn't have there was no special area um, for for the for us for the women we just went over to the men's side or they came over as you had your boyfriends but when it was visiting days the women we even though the pres- the visitors could go everywhere they could walk around everywhere, all parts. But the women prisoners, we got locked in our part because a lot of the men, male prisoners that had girlfriend prisoners also had wives mm. that were coming in on the visiting days. So that mm. kind of, you know, disasters needed to be kept 
separate. So the wives would just come in um, on the visiting days and, um, you know, if there's a cell with, you know, four or five guys in or whatever, the guy just says to his other male friends, you know, give us half an hour, I, I imagine, mm. you know, my wife's here and they probably take it in turns to have the, the room to themselves. Did you make any friends in this prison? Yeah. Yeah. Any you can tell us the stories? Um, I don't, in that one, in San Antonio. Yeah. Um, I, most of them have, it's all the same story, really, with, with, the, with the foreigners. Um, with, there was a lot of Dutch, there was some Dutch, some German, um, and it's all the same, it's all the same thing. Drugs. You know, yeah, it's just, it's all, it's all, um, drugs. Um, and the guys, I didn't really know too much in that one. I was only there a year. I hadn't, I was learning Spanish. I was learning the way, you know, um, I don't think I knew too many stories, but in the, when I got to the last prison in Meridad, by then I was fluent in Spanish. I was making good friends, um, um, it's such big the, the the boss leaders they're big big time drug dealers you know the biggest drug dealers in um in the country you know in south america you know they're linked to peru to colombia to the trade routes um <laughs> and then um the national guards used to bring the drugs, a lot of the drugs that get taken at the airports. So I got caught with five kilos, I think it was. It was three kilos by the time I went to court, obviously. So the the guards, they confiscate the drugs at the airport, but they don't know what to do with them. So they'll bring them into the prison and give them to the gang leaders or the gang leaders obviously, you know, pay them. And then it gets redistributed again around the country from from the prison yeah just like Escobar yeah um, he'd have stage busts and the police would come and bust the warehouse and the media would be there and the police captain would get a promotion and then the drugs would just go right back to Pablo yeah. and he'd just send them on to America yeah yeah so I think it's pretty much the same I th- yeah I think that's how it works it is that's all over works, Central it's South it's, yeah. all over the world it works like that yeah, yeah. just it's too it's, valuable a product to dispose of yeah so just in this first prison, then, uh, the final story from here, then, would be your sentencing day. Yeah. What was that like? Um, it was kind of okay because I knew what was going to happen from day from day one, from the airport I had been told, and by the time it came to my sentence... I didn't know my sentencing day. I just got called in the morning and told I was going to to court um and i went to court had this sentence had this hearing in spanish with an interpreter that couldn't speak english so <laughs> that pretended then was getting paid for interpreting that wasn't interpreting very well so it was all in spanish basically um and i got given a load of paperwork and then when i came back to the prison the one of the english girls asked me what had happened and I said, I don't know. And I gave her the paperwork and she said, well, you got caught with three keys. You pleaded guilty. You got sentenced to 10 years. And it was kind of, a, you know, 
it was a kind of relief that because you got the certainty then of knowing it's yeah, done. Yeah, yeah, it's done. You know, now I can adjust mentally. Yeah, adjust and start trying to maybe accept the truth of what's going on. Getting sentenced to nine and a half years was one of the happiest days of my life because I could see when I was going to get out mm. after facing a big sentence. Yeah. So why did you get moved to prison? Um, I put in for it. It was a miracle, actually. Um, I'd been there about a year and um, I'd picked up my drug addiction again. Mm. So I had a raging, raging drug addiction out of control, 10 times worse than it had ever been in England because mm. it's just ridiculously cheap, ridiculously, you know, strong. Um, it was just, it was just, you know, ruined me. And I felt... I don't know, I felt I was kind of feeling like I had nothing to live, you know, just 10 years, I couldn't, once I accepted what was going on, I was like, I don't know, I think I can face 10 years of of this, I'm processing what's going on now and understanding it, and I just, I don't think I'm strong enough. And um, I took an overdose, because um, I just wanted to die, you know, I just wanted a way out, and I, and I took an overdose. What was the overdose? Um, I think it was Ritalin, or Rehypnol. One of the two, these tablets that the guys used to take, if they were going to fight, they used to take these tablets and then drink loads of coffee so like to get them like mm. peaked. So I think it's Ritalin, isn't it? That's the stuff. It's like speed, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so I just got a load of those and just nailed a load of those and went to sleep and, you know, hoped that I'd never wake mm. up. And um, I was out for about two days, I think. Yeah, about two days I was out. Never got took to hospital, never got took to the medical (sighs) wing. Um, The guards came in when I wasn't getting out for numero. They'd come in. Oh, yeah, she's breathing still. She's still alive. So um, they told me I was out for about two days. Mm. And uh, when I came round, I was like, no. Like, why? Mm. Why? And um, I was convinced that I should have been dead, you know. Um. So I got on my hands and knees and I prayed and cried. Like I've never prayed and cried in my whole life, you know, and begged, absolutely begged, you know, a higher power to to help me mm. to get out of there, to please help me get out of there. The fact that I had in my, I felt like the fact that I wasn't dead meant that there was a reason that I wasn't, I didn't know why and I didn't know what. But if that was the case, then help me and get me out of here, please. Mm. And if you get me out of here, I won't, wherever I go to next, I won't smoke any crap. (laughs) (laughs) I'll stop sniffing coke and I'll, you know, I'll stop. Just please, please get me out of here um, if you've got, you know, a plan for me. And I kind of made a deal, you know, which I don't know if you really can supposed to do that. But, um, and then I got transferred a week later, which is unheard of. So you applied for a transfer? Yeah, I applied yeah. for it then, and then a week later. Got... So what was the journey like to the new place? Oh my gosh, it was um, insane. It was on a um, a coach, like a National Express, not a prison coach. <laughs> it was just a coach that they'd booked, a National Express with um, two National Guards, and we sat at the back, and they I wasn't handcuffed, Um there wasn't really much um, security. The 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 one um, national guard got a bit fruity, 
because um, it was right at the back of the coach. Nobody's going to say anything. It's National Guard. You no, know, I'm terrified. You know, whatever. Yeah. So he's trying it on with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You wanted a hand job. Oh. <laughs> on the back seat of the of the National Express. Oh. Yeah. How did he indicate that to you? He grabbed my hand and put it down his pants. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So um, it was it was interesting. And then we stopped at some at some um, like a service station because it was quite a long. We had to get on a ferry, um, and we stopped at a f- service station. And everyone got off the coach, and they asked me if I wanted a drink. And I said, "Yeah, I want a bottle of rum, especially after I've just given you a hand job." <laughs> Which I felt, you know, I. What can you do? Mm. What can you do? You, you know, say no. I was terrified, you know. I was mm. terrified. They've got big guns, you know. So I was like, yeah, I'll have a bottle of rum. And they said, okay, we'll be back here at the coach in like half an hour and just let me go. Just let <laughs> just let And I was just like, <laughs> now's my chance. <laughs> Where'd you go? <laughs> they can't speak Spanish. I've got no money. I've got no phone cards. How far am I possibly gonna get in that moment mm. you know w- with that lack of skills and knowledge and uh, y- you know s- what, before they catch me what two miles down the road yeah uh, you know and and then you know and I'm, I'm gonna get beaten you know severely so then when we got back on the coach got the bottle of rum got on a f- ferry got let loose again on the ferry to just you know Roam around <laughs> wherever. Taste of freedom. Oh, I just I debated about jumping off. I was <laughs> I was on the boat looking over at the waves, thinking, "Shall I do it? Shall I do it? Shall I, shall I just jump off?" And you know, as we were getting, I was like, swim there." And but again, it was like, "And yeah, but then what are you going to do? Mm. How far are you going to get, Natalie? Before you know, the police or the guards, you know, get you. You don't know anybody or anything or anyone." Um, but it was that taste of freedom as well. Mm. The wind and the sea and the boat. And it was just like, f- for a moment, I was able to just absorb that moment, mm. you know, and just forget for a little while the the actual reality of the situation I was really in. So what was the next prison called and how was it arriving there? It was Los Tecas. There's two Los I think it's, there's two lost techers in Caracas. There's a men's one and there's a women's one, but they're, they're separate. Oh, so it was all just women in it this new one? It was all just women. Yeah, there was actually some order um, to this. There was education, there was jobs, there was food, um, there was proper kind of, you know, wings and cells with your own rooms and bunks and... Um, I really kind of got my recovered and absorbed the last year. You know, I had some time to actually process the things that I'd been witnessing and the things that I'd been going through and, and had an opportunity to try and, you know, take stock of the situation and try and, you know, deal with it and comprehend it a little bit. And I was still... um 
grateful that you know I was I still had that faith inside of me and and great you know gratefulness you know the thank you thank you thank you thank you so um it was it was um it was it was boring compared to the the first one but I I was happy with boring <laughs> I was more than happy with no gunshots no no oh. gunshots just like dead snakes and <laughs> dead snakes and um I think the most you know education work has an opportunity to earn money there and you know actually start learning Spanish properly and what was your job sewing sewing <laughs> yeah because <laughs> you could take it back to yeah it was just like doing these cross stitch things that went on cushions so you could go to the um like not warehouse what do you call it I don't know education kind of block and take your stuff there and then when education finished you could take it back to yourselves and the more you did you know the more you got paid so you know I'd just be there and it's quite meditative as well you know it's focused you're getting a bit of money you've got your mind occupied you're tired and there was good games organized you know games you know kicking ball and volleyball and you know there's um, quite a lot of stuff um, going on there so it was all gravy until the naughty women show up. That wasn't in that prison. Oh, that's still not that that's one. That's still not that one. that's one of the most harrowing <laughs> stories, is that what they do to yeah. that woman? Yeah, yeah, I didn't, yeah. Oh. Eight, uh, yeah, it was such a relief to be there, and then it was only about eight months, and then all of a sudden, one morning, I'm just being told that we're being shipped out. And where were you getting shipped out to? San Juan de Lagunillas, which is in Medidad. So what was that journey like? Uh, long. Yeah, that was really long. Um, I can't remember how we got there, actually. Probably National Express. It must have been... Well, I doubt it was National Express. You know, it was probably, I think it was Megabus, actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I can't remember. So the one up in the mountains? Los Tecas. Yeah. Yes, yeah. right at the top of the mountains. in Medidad, which is about four hours away from the Colombian border oh she's on the border of Colombia here yeah yeah okay yeah back into a mixed prison and did you know anyone at this new prison I I don't know I don't know if there were some people that might have been transferred there from from some of the other prisons or transferred there beforehand I really can't remember so what were your living quarters like uh the same as the the first one Big cells sectioned off again um, into your little kind of groups. Um, toilets in there. Uh, there was hardly ever uh, there was hardly ever water, which was a bit of a, a pain in the ass, you know, for flushing the toilets and mm. washing the clothes and trying to wash your. Di- you know, the water could go off. Uh, I don't know, three, four, five days at a time. You know, no mm. running water whatsoever. You know, when you've got you know nine hundred people. <laughs> living so, so you got a men's section on this one yeah there were th- three men's sections on this on this one um a lot more discreet than the first one still you still got your bosses again of each section and they're still very protected you know if they're going out of their area um, they're in the middle with about 20 guys around them with their guns and with their knives all on display as a saying, you know, we're protecting this guy and, you know, we're we're going to fight if anyone's going to come for him. 
Um, but apart from that, they're not really walking around. They're keeping, I think, for the for the sake of the women, you know, they're they they were a little bit more um, respectful, I think, in in trying to keep that, you know, away from the from the sight of the of the women. So what happened when the disruptive women came? Um, there was this poor girl there. We were all going over to the men's side. We were playing volleyball over there all the time, which was pretty, you know, it was it was great. You know, good volleyball matches, mixed teams and stuff. And um, some of the women um, would stay in the women's bit and not come over. And um, there was a transfer in of some uh, malandras, they're called, um, troublemakers, um, they they keep getting moved around, moved around, moved around, and moved around, um, and they were you know like a, a gang. All of a sudden, there's this woman, you know, there's never been in my experience of jail so far, you know, this this woman um, gang. And I woke up one morning, I think I just got there, distraught again because I just saw this environment. And I thought, oh God, you know, here here we go here we go again i just come from this you know calm place and i thought i knew that i was going back into what had happened um and my embassy had come to see me and i had this little wooden locker next to the side of my bed and um, when your embassy come to see you it's like you're seven years old and father christmas has been <laughs> you know you've got biscuits and deodorant <laughs> and rice and you know hot chocolate and it's just like christmas and um i woke up one morning and uh, i had a girl sat on top of me with a knife to my throat telling me to open my cabinet and give her like all the stuff that my embassy had just brought me the day before mm. um and at that point i was feeling that kind of i wish i was dead thing again so i thought you know what Pff, do me a favor come on then you know? <laughs> so what did you do <laughs> I, I, I want well i wanted her to to, to do me so i threw her off <laughs> i threw her off me thinking that she'd like get me and she didn't i threw her off me and i managed to get the knife out of her hand and ended up chasing her around <laughs> ended up chasing. i was so pissed off <laughs> I was, uh, if i'd have thought about doing that i wouldn't have done it you know but because i wanted to lose Snapped. yeah and it was just like is it come on then i've got you know nothing to lose and everything to the gain red, the red mist yeah <laughs> yeah so um i got left alone after that um they, they just i they didn't they, they left they didn't try and bully me how many members of this gang were there i think it was about three or four and who was the leader her name was Lachina, but uh, not the uh, same china that was in the police station with me in the beginning so la china was like the, the the enforcer for the gang yeah she was the she was the leader the troublemaker okay bad she was she was she was bad yeah yeah she was robbing people um she they they raped this girl one day once whilst we were all out playing volleyball over at the men's side there was a really young vulnerable girl there and um we came back and an ambulance was there and she you know was being taken out and she was in hospital for god i don't know at least three four months and they'd pinned her down and they'd raped her with a with a broom and they'd split 
from this, the 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 female screws told us what how bad it was, and they'd split this girl from front to back and raped her with this broom, absolutely you know savaged her, and um, the girl came back into prison um, that had been in hospital, gone, absolutely gone. She just stand there shaking with peeing herself and you couldn't even communicate with her. We had to feed her, we had to change her, we had to wash her, we had to dress her. She was just, you know, in another place. Wow. Yeah. And the gang leader ended up in a situation, didn't she? Yeah. What happened to her? She was she was then bullying um another girl. Um, and she was robbing this girl, and it was a you know it was a poor girl, and it wasn't a, she didn't even have an embassy. It was a Venezuelan girl. She didn't have much, um, and Latina was just bullying her and robbing her all the time. And the male boss on the other side was getting wind of this and wasn't happy about it. You know they want the women to to be happy and content and you know this this wasn't on and he gave her a gun you know and they net that you know this is unheard of you know for girls to have guns the men just you know completely protect the women from that side of life but a man one of the prisoners can't go and shoot this latina they you know the men can't touch her but something needs to be done about the situation so he gives, you know, the girl that's being bullied um, again. And we we don't know at the time, you know, this all comes out afterwards. You don't know he's got this gun. And then she snapped. And we're sat outside in the courtyard one day and Latina comes running out of the cell, which, first of all, is bizarre because who's she running away from? <laughs> you know? Who, you know, how come she's running away, you know, shitting herself, you know, terrified. And then we see why, because the other girl that's been bullied is running behind her with a gun, pointing a gun at her, shoots her, gets her in the back of the leg and she goes down. And then when she's gone down, the girl just goes up to her and just put in the back of the head. She's in the back of the head and it's in the courtyard. Wow. Mm. What happened to the shooter? What, to the gun or to the person that shot to the To the person. Um, she got she got kind of sliced up. Everyone got um, put in their put in their cells, um, and they took away you know Latina, and the whole prison was locked completely, you know, locked off. And um, we weren't allowed over to the men's side. The men weren't you know there was no communication going on. Um, the phones got locked off for a little while. And until you know it came out what had happened because when the men do that there's no investigations it's just left alone but this was different and then they find out um that it was that it was her so they locked her in a cell on her own but there were still the other people from the, the gang. from the gang and so the girl that had shot her was getting shipped out um and we were all locked behind the bars but the courtyards there and the other girl that was part of the gang said to the the screws and the national guards as they were taking her out they said you can't 
just let her take her out um without her not without her not even having a mark on her you know you need to let me kind of um what's it called revenge you know revenge my 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 friend and you know there needs to be a a, a, a sign you know she's killed this person so they unlocked her as well and we could all mm. see in the courtyard and then the, a lot of the girls had made shanks with the broom handles and they'd put razor blades, like really long broom handles and put razor blades on the end of them. Mm. And as the girl was walking past, they were poking the the broom handles through to try and like slice her. And then the other girl just went launching at her and just absolutely pummeled her. Um, she didn't have a, a a knife or anything on her. That all got checked first and just pummeled her to the floor until um, the guards and just you know separated separated them and then and took her out, transferred her. Jesus, the things know. calmed down after that. It was really tense. Not straight away, no, because the other girls were still still there, and they were monitoring everything that everyone was doing. You know, the guys didn't know what was you know going on a couple of us had mobiles um but we were having to be really careful you know because these girls didn't want us telling the guys what was going on and the guys are ringing the prison phones as well so they're stood there by the prison phones listening to all the conversations you know they're walking around the cells to see if anyone's talking on their mobiles it was really 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 tense um for a while um until they and then they got shipped out Mm. which was just like the biggest like relief for everybody so all the the gang the girl gang got moved yeah got moved as well so did things go back to relative normal yeah except we stopped being able to go over to the men's side really so much we used to go over there quite regularly and play games and have little parties again and socialize and that kind of you know that kind of stopped then so, did anything else notable happen before you met the guard who helped you escape? I got really pissed in front of my judge, my solicitors, and in front of all like the press of Venezuela. Yeah, I was so nervous. Yeah, I didn't do myself any favors. I um, they do they've got a thing called gaita over there, which is like Christmas carols. Um, and the, they asked me to join the the Gaita band because it was like a you know I was a novelty you know in English a gringa blonde hair blue eyes you know singing and dancing you know Gaita um, and one of the Venezuelan guys in the band was actually a famous Venezuelan singer so the Gaita band actually started to get a reputation for itself. Um, and we started to be invited out of the prison, of the prison. Uh, to, 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 to go and on do tour. on tour, yeah, <laughs> on Gaita tour. So um, before that happened, we had this, you know, show where all the 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 press and the papers and the judges and the solicitors were all invited, you know, to come and see us do this, you know, Gaita show. And I was so, I was so nervous. And I was so, so nervous. I couldn't, I was shaking. You know, I was absolutely terrified. I was shaking. My legs were wobbly. So I asked the guys to give me a bit of, you know, moonshine to help me, like, with the nerves. But I just drank the whole bottle. And then when I tried to do the gaita thing, I couldn't even stand up. Oh. Couldn't even stand up. I got carried, <laughs> carried off. Yeah, so I had that go in my file. It was um that was interesting. Um 
and then I had to pay. <laughs> I had to pay the administrator the equivalent, like twenty pound, to take it out of my file. <laughs> and then I had to pay the judge like a bit of money as well. Like when I was applying for my day releases to pretend mm. that that had, you know never happened. Um, I think I think that's all I can think of at the moment before before um, Jose turned up. So describe meeting Jose. Oh wow! Um, I thought he was so hot. I thought he was so hot. I was so attracted to him, but he was so rude. <laughs> like he he really was. I was like trying to get his attention and stuff, and he was always just kind of calling me like Bora, you know, like donkey, and like messing around with me <laughs> and just like insulting me a little bit. And um, but I don't know. I just felt an attraction to him. Like love, literally love at first at first sight. That that strong. Um, so I sent him my phone number because I, I had a I had a I had a phone, um, and he just started ringing me um, and carried on with the insults, you know, over the phone. Um, but it was just um, it was banter, you know. It was um, it was just it was just banter, and and we fell in love. Like we really, really, you know, fell in love, and it took me a, a long time to believe that he loved me. Um, and you know, poor guy, what he had to do to convince me that he loved me, um, because I thought that I was just something. Way you know, he was working there four weeks on, three weeks off, so I thought that I was probably just, what um, you know, a, a way of him to you know pass the time a little bit more. You know, interestingly, um, but no, it was um, it was it was it was real. It was real. And he, um, in the beginning, he kind of like said he wasn't interested in you because he was he was trying to treat treat his job professionally. He yeah. was new and he wants to yeah have a good record. Yeah, well, he'd just been sent there because he'd got caught selling caught bringing some weed in in the other prison that mm. he'd been working in. Him and his mate. They'd been bringing weed in in the in the van in the other prison they'd been working in. So he'd been sent there, you know, because, like as a kind of, I don't know, probation kind of thing. So, um, you know, I think he was trying to be a little bit more um, professional. But it didn't last long because he started doing the same thing there as well. Did people know that you guys were falling in love? Yeah. Yeah, everybody knew. Because where I was housed, there was a guy that was uh, and a female guard. And when it spreads, word spreads, prisoners get jealous. They think, right, why aren't I, you know, yeah. maybe if I get rid of him, yeah. I'll have a chance with her. Yeah. There's all kinds of yeah. it was, games, was a mind games. So many. Yeah. Um, yeah, every, everybody knew because um, he didn't hide it. You know, for me, I would have but he just didn't care. He didn't hide it. Um, it was kind of all right with the prisoners, with the with the prisoners, because um, he would let me know when we were going to get raided and stuff. You know, when because <laughs> I had a phone and he'd bought me a phone as well. Um, so when 
the National Guards were coming in to spin the cells and to do searches and stuff, he'd ring me up and let me know so I could go and tell everybody that had phones and all the drug dealers and everyone that we were going to... So it was a resource. Yeah, so and they all knew that the information was coming from him, so it was working in, you know, everyone's favours, really, um, and getting, you know, bringing things in. He was bringing the drugs into the prison with the guards and stuff as well. Um, But there were, like, two... Lots of prison guards that we had the the las brujas that we called them, which were the witches that were completely against it um, and did everything that they possibly could to keep us, you know, um, apart. And then there was another group of guards that could, because Latin Americans are very, very passionate people, you know, um, and they're all about love. So there was this other group of guards that could see that the, you know this was this was real and and did everything they could to put us you know to support us and give us time together and alone and you know he'd arranged to do a hospital shift and then you know give like um one of the guards you know 20 pound phone credit to get me down to the hospital (laughs) and then he'd like give someone else some phone credit for them to not do their shift and swap you know just try and so we had some you know, some some people that were really, really on our side. Because you had a senior staff member on your side, didn't you? Like a deputy warden or something. Um, There was... Oh, it was... Yes, you got in trouble was, a few times yeah, and this yeah, guy yeah. helped you. Yeah, 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 yeah. We took him out. Um, we took him out. Yeah, he was the um, deputy governor because the governor had a thing for me. So he called me into the office one day and asked me what, you know, what he'd heard that there was this relationship going on with me and Jose. And, and I was like, no, you know, I was like, there's nothing going on. That's just people just, you know, talking and because, you know, I'm a gringer and just, you know, they just don't like me and whatever. Um, and it was his like the, the deputy director that was really good friends with with, with Jose. <laughs> so at night times, they'd let me out. They'd come and get me at night when people, when everyone else was sleeping, they'd come and get me and let me out and so I could spend, you know, time with him. Um, when I got my day releases, um, we'd take him out. We'd go, and especially like, Jose wasn't working, and it was carnival. And we'd go out, and we'd take him to a bar, and we'd get him really pissed, <laughs> and then ask him to phone up the jail and say that I didn't have to come back. And he'd ring up the jail and say I didn't have to come back for like a week. Because <laughs> 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 we'd bought him like a bottle of rum <laughs> at, the, at the carnival. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty nuts. So you start to take liberties then? Absolutely, completely and utterly. And is that going to backfire? Oh my gosh, yeah, it started to piss people off. I was probably spending maybe two nights every three weeks or something in the in the prison <laughs> and I was you know bouncing around you know in like real nice clothes you know and I was having food sent over to me all the time he'd sent some mariachis in to sing to me <laughs> for my birthday they'd call you know <laughs> it, it, was, <laughs> it was it was really um yeah and I was, yeah, it's just you know I was like anything I just had anything I wanted really in there and so and, it, and you know and I think they were getting pissed off cause when people was, have got nothing and they see that yeah I mean I'm sharing everything I've got but if I'd have been Venezuelan I'm sure that 
that people wouldn't have got you know annoyed at all but when there's venezuelan people in there and they've got families and they've got kids there and they're trying to get their day releases and then there's you know an english girl that's coming back waltzing matilda yeah that's you know out you know most of the time and doing what she wants i can understand those um feelings you know I said that I I was going out on the pretense that I had a job I had familiar support out there you know I didn't have any of those things you know we just paid everybody to say that that was just I was just we were just going out and um we got wind that because we kept paying the judge all the time you know between us we were paying off you know different people and then we got wind we got a warning that um the judge was saying that she wasn't she was going to have to do something it gone you know too far and that I was gonna get my um day releases revoked so what plan did you formulate to get out of there out of, work. <laughs> out of the jail at first it was like I didn't know what to do because I still had like five years left on my sentence and how old were you at this point 25 okay I think yeah yeah, so I still had five years left. Um, so you'd served a full five by now? Yeah, wow. about four and a half. I'd, yeah, four wow. and a half I'd been there for. And it was, we kind of thought, right, shall I ride it out? Shall we do the five years? Because we were we were ha- happy and we were in love. And we thought, should we ride out the five years? Because in two years, I can probably, you know, try and get this day releases stuff again. And then we were like, but they're going to move him around here, there and everywhere. And it's going to be hard. Um, or because we had some money and we thought, oh, should I get out of there? And I thought, I've got, you know, I've got a daughter in England um, that I abandoned. I felt like I abandoned. And I was carrying massive, massive feelings of guilt. And I thought, how, how dare I be here happy like this? When I've got, you know, when I've left my, when I did that to my child, so we need, I need to, you know, let's get out of here. So, um, yeah, we made a plan. So you're on the border of Colombia, aren't you? Yeah, I just smuggle myself across the border. So what is the plan then? How are you going to do that? How are you going to get? We had no plan how to get across the border of Colombia. We would, we we had a plan to get to the border, and then we were just going to wing it. So what was the, the plan to get to the border? Um, so it was, I was going to go out on a day release. Um, this was the last day, wasn't it, before yeah. you were going to get revoked? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I planned to go out on a day release. and You got up an hour early, yeah. which was abnormal. Yeah, yeah. There was a, one of the prison guards knew, and one of the prisoners knew. Well, one of the female prisoner guards knew. And one God, of you the must have trusted prison, them. She'd been helping us. She'd been helping us. So much, yeah, she really had. We used to meet up with her, like, you know, not in prison and <clears throat> had a good relationship with her. So, um, and we had the, there's like checkpoints where um, I can't pass those checkpoints because of the, the region that I'm in and the National Guard, they're going to know me because they go on tour. So they might do six months in a prison and then six months at a checkpoint and then six months at an airport so I couldn't go to a Venezuelan airport because I'm taking a risk. And you stand out. Yeah, blonde hair. I had blonde hair then, blue eyes. They're going to be, ah, oh, there's that gringa that was, you know, she's still got five years left. So the plan was, right, we'll go to Colombia. And we managed to pay off 
most of the checkpoints. We managed to find out who was going to be working on the checkpoints and get most of the guards um, paid off. And I was going to meet Jose at the bus station. Um, but it didn't, go, it didn't quite go to plan. And why is that? Um, I think there was floods or raining and there was like mudslides. And um, I couldn't get to the bus station. I couldn't get, like, the routes were all blocked off and I'm on this on this bus and he's trying to go every, every way that he can and there's a landslide one way and there's a river that's burst the other way and I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, I can't go back to jail. I can't go back to jail. This has to work. <laughs> this has to work. And we got to this, um, like, river and I just, I just pleaded with the bus driver to drive through it. Well, this is the second bus, right? There's a first bus and a taxi, isn't there? Yeah. Go back to the first bus first. This is the bus. Oh, this is the same the, bus? This is, the, yeah. Okay. This is, I think this is the same bus. Or was there one that turned around? There was this one that turned around. There's the one, yeah, the one that turned yeah. around and then they'd have to change buses and get on a different bus. And you got on a, ta- in a taxi and then that- he took you so far... And then he started, uh, he, he yeah. wouldn't go through he the water. Go. Yeah, yeah, then yeah. he wouldn't go through the water. So then I got on this other bus, but then I saw like these four by fours getting through like the river. Um, and I pleaded, there must have been some energy that I gave to the bus driver, you know, like begging without telling him my situation. I think he yeah. could see that, you know, I need to get across. This is like a life or death situation. Yeah. Please, <laughs> please try it. Um, and he did. And we got through it. Like, so that, which was a miracle. Bus, so slow down. That bus is entering the water. Mm. What? Full of people. The whole bus is full of yeah, people. Yeah, it's absolutely ram full of people. And, what's, yeah. what's and they're ha- all supporting me because they all want to get across what, the river. What's as happening well. as, it's, as the bus is entering the water? I was kind of sinking. It's, it's going, sinking. <laughs> it's going right under. It's going under. How high is the water? Oh, above the wheels. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. But everyone on the bus yeah. is kind of on my side. It's almost yeah. like they could see the desperation, but they also want to get across. So yeah. I think. You know when your car's running out of petrol and you manage to get it to the petrol station on pure willpower? (laughs) I think that that combination of all those people on that bus, you know, willing it through that river. At what point... With it going through the river, did you realise it was going to make it? If we got just halfway, after we got halfway across. You knew? Yeah, and it started going up. And how are you then? How are you feeling? Like, uh, it's ecstatic. <laughs> yeah, everyone's clapping. Everyone's clapping. <laughs> yeah. Every, you know when the pilot lands his plane? Yeah. It's like, everyone's like, yeah. And I'm just like, like the sigh of relief because I'm just like... And how's Jose handling all this? Or is he somewhere else waiting for you? Oh, he's somewhere else. Okay, and you're running behind now because of all these delays. So behind, yeah. And um, we haven't got phones because we've sold our phones because we're trying to get every, you know, penny together. Yeah. So I'm not able to phone him. He's not able to get in contact with me. And I'm running hours behind now. You know, so, so you I, might think you've been arrested or something. He's, I've got, you know, I think that's exactly what he thought. I didn't think he'd be there. Yeah, I thought when I got to the kind of taxi um, <coughs> station, I I didn't think you know he'd be there. And I and then I thought, what am I going to do? So this taxi station, the rendezvous point, is yeah. that's still in Venezuela. Yes, you've yet to cross the border. Yeah, this is yeah, we've even got across the border yet. But I'm panicking now because I'm thinking the fuck am I going to do if he's not there? I can't go back to jail. 
I can't go back there yeah, now, yeah. you know, I, I, I can, and I've got no money, um, I don't know where I'm going, I don't know what I'm doing, mm. like, what am I going to do? So I start to panic a little bit and um, get off the bus and just walk up the road and at the, like, passageway and, and there he is. He was there. He was there with his prison guard mate as well who came <laughs> who'd come along for the journey. So when you set eyes on him, yeah. what are you thinking? It was a miracle. Yeah, it was just it was just, just butterflies mm. in the it's just love. It was just pure love and belief in love and belief that love had the power to conquer any obstacle ever. Including crossing the Colombian border. <laughs> well, that was yeah. That was there was some praying involved with that one. So what happens? So because we'd only figured out what to do up to there, um, and then Jose said we'd figure it out from there. So we asked this taxi because a lot of people do these little border runs to Cucuta and back from that village. This is the last village before the the crossing. Um, so we asked this taxi if he would take us, and we just hoped that we wouldn't get stopped, you know, because they don't, they don't stop everybody going across the border and we were going to try and hide me like under a blanket or something somewhere or another without the taxi man realising. And then there were these Mexicans that wanted to cross the border as well. So we all decided to share the same taxi and then as we got to the border, I just kind of like pretended that I was uh, asleep. And then um, I think the, the guards did stop us, I think. And the taxi driver said something like, oh, it's just doing English. You can't speak Spanish. They're just doing a quick run to the air. And they just let us through. Wow. I know, which again is... How did it feel to be across that one? It's the biggest relief I've ever felt in my whole life. Because the moment I'm across the border that's it i'm free were you worried when you were planning all this that you would get back to england and they'd send you back to venezuela i wasn't coming back to england that wasn't oh, the plan what was the plan then the plan was to go to spain and we were supposed to have some work and accommodation lined up for us in spain um and there was supposed to be people waiting at the airport for us so the plan was we were going to go to spain and we were going to find work in Spain and I was going to get my daughter sent over from England and we were going to make a, a life in, in, in Spain and I was just going to be on the run for whatever, the rest of my life, So <laughs> hiding in Spain. Before we get to Spain then, or mm. wherever you end up, mm. you've crossed the border, mm. where'd you go next? Bogot- uh, we went to, we find a hostel in Cucuta, uh, which was pretty terrifying because we go in and the lady that owns the hostel recommends that we don't go out and that we lock all our possessions in the safe in the room and because there's some political problems going on <laughs> and I was just like, brilliant, this is great. <clears throat> we got to go out because we need to book our, our coach to get to, Bo- to get to Bogota. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Jose was like, don't worry about it. And, you know, and I'm thinking, I've since, you know, I think you need to... I've, I reckon I could probably deal with it you know I've seen some stuff by now <laughs> <laughs> probably more than the women in the in, yeah. the in the hostel you know yeah so we got this we went out just got the coach ticket got some food and just went back to our hotel room and stayed there the night and then got the coach the next day to Bogota um and another miracle happened 
because you, you get stopped in between Kukuta and Bogota. There's um, like a like a border, kind of not a, a, a country border, but like a stop check where the national guards come on and um, ask to see everyone's you know ID on the coach. So when we find that, I, I was thinking like. I, you know, I was kind of shitting myself because I didn't have, we didn't have entry stamps on our passports on how we'd got into Colombia. Mm. How did you even have a passport? I got it off the embassy. How? Um, I told them when I had my day releases, I told them that I was applying for jobs and that um, I needed to have ID mm. and that the only ID I had was my prison ID and that I didn't want to show prison ID, um, you know, so is there any chance that I could have my passport so mm. that I could uh, paid a little bit, of, <laughs> paid a little bit of money um, and got my passport. But you've got no entry visa into Colombia. No. Swams. Um, we didn't get we didn't get stopped on the coach. The coach driver said in twenty years that he'd been driving. That was the first time that they'd never been. We had angels around. You had like a force field, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I love the strongest power in the world. Yeah. Everything was just lined up. It was, it was flowing. So you get to the airport now. You got tickets booked, or? Uh, no, we got. We went and got some tickets booked when we were in Bogota. Got nicked at the airport. What do you mean? <laughs> we got arrested for what? For not having pass. For not having an entry stamp. <laughs> they thought I was smuggling drugs. <laughs> they knew that something <coughs> wasn't was, right. Something wasn't right. Yeah, they, they. They were like, "Why haven't you got? Um, you know, how how on earth have you got into Colombia?" Um, I played dumb. You know, I said, I've come from Venezuela, you know, I've been traveling, you know, with my boyfriend and, you know, we just, we didn't, I didn't get, didn't get stopped, you know, I didn't realize you had to get it stamped. And they were like, nah, they weren't falling for that. (laughs) (laughs) They weren't falling for that. You're the news by now, like escaped person. No, because I bought myself three or four days out of the jail. Oh, the work release thing. Yeah. Yeah. I paid Uh, off to, and the the female guard that knew what we were doing, I phoned her up and said, Mm. I'm in Colombia. Can you say that you've had permission come through? So I'd bought myself like I think it was four days wow. grace so before the clock's ticking. Yeah, before so it's like I need to get out of here. Yeah. So um they searched <laughs> they searched the bags and the suitcase and then asked if we could go that if I minded going to hospital and being X rayed, mm. you know, because they thought I was smuggling drugs. Um and I had a feeling that there would be some issues at the airport, so we checked in really early. Mm. Um so they didn't find anything in the bags. So when they started talking about hospital, um, I said, yeah, can we go now? Here's the money for the taxi. I'll pay for the taxi, you know, because they don't have prison transport, really. I said, yeah, can we go now? Because the flight's not for another five hours. Here's the money for the taxi. If we go now, maybe it's time to go there, get the x-rays done and get back in time to, to get the flight. Um so they didn't take didn't take me because so they they've just like there's too much confidence there mm. for somebody if if they've got a stomach full of drugs they're not yeah. going to be that keen um, and they kept saying like something's not right so in the end we kind of 
confessed that you know that there that there was something that maybe wasn't entirely you know right, but that it wasn't drugs, and that it wasn't you know a problem that Colombia needed to worry about, and how much was it going to cost to you know sort this situation out? So um, we had to pay them two hundred and fifty dollars each uh, to just <laughs> just let us let us get on the get on the plane. Yeah, how did it feel to board that plane? Like. I couldn't, I, it was, it just started to sink in all the luck that we'd had. Because whilst I was going through these moments, you know, um, I wasn't really appreciating, you know, I was just so focused. There was only one outcome, you know, there was no way that the coach was not going to go through the river. That didn't even go through my mind, you know. So when we were actually on the plane and, we got, and we're so exhausted by now you know I'm mentally tired and I've got to sit down and look back at it all I'm just like I can't believe it I can't believe that I'm on this plane I can't believe all these obstacles that were just overcame so easily and I was just so excited um for this new life you know with with, with Jose that we were going to have together um it was an amazing feeling did people meet you at the airport on the other side? No, <laughs> there was nobody there. So what did you <laughs> there do? There was no work. There was no. What did you there do? There was nowhere to stay. There was nobody there. Um, Jose had a friend who had a brother from Venezuela that was living in Spain. Um, so he hooked us up with this guy, um, and we went and stayed with with him for a bit. Um, it, it just completely screwed all our plans up. Massively. Um, Are you running out of money by now? We're starting to, yeah. So we're we're trying to find work, n- not finding work. Neither of us are finding work. And we thought it would be really easy to find work um, in Spain. But we are in the wrong place. We were in Bilbao, um, which isn't like it's not it's not easy there to find work it's cold it's cold people it's it's what year did you land in spain 2005 2006 yeah so so what did you do yourselves uh we stayed there for like nine months trying to trying to um find work we ran out of money people that we were staying with were feeding us um and we were struggling so I said to Jose that if we went back to England, I could get free money um, and somewhere to live off my government, which he couldn't comprehend. You know, he he didn't believe me. He just and I was like, no, honestly. Was there an extradition treaty in place? No. No, but I didn't know what the situation was. So I phoned, this was quite funny actually, um, I phoned the Foreign and Commonwealth Office in London um, and I'd met a few of them because they'd come over. They'd come over sometimes to Venezuela and talk to us and tell us that there was no repatriation and not to get our hoops up and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I phoned them up and asked them what my status was. You know, I said, if I come back to England, what's, you know, what's the situation? Will I get put back into prison, you know, to finish my sentence off in England? Um, will I you know, get shipped back to Venezuela. Um, and they were just so confused because Venezuela hadn't told them that I'd um, done a runner. They thought I was still in jail. <laughs> <laughs> I'd been gone for nine months. 
<laughs> they were like, what, what do you mean? They said, you can't come back yet. You've still got like another five years. And I was like, have you, have you not spoken to Venezuela? Because I'm not there. I've, I've done a, I've escaped. I've done a runner. <laughs> so they were like, where are you? I said, well, that doesn't matter. <laughs> but here's my email. <laughs> can, can you let me, you know, can you let me know what the, what, what my status, yeah. what my legal status is? So they liaised with Venezuela and um, Venezuela said that they weren't interested in extraditing me back there. It cost them a lot of money, you know. It would be, it's probably an embarrassment for them as well, isn't it? It's, it's you know, the, the embassy doesn't give them money for me being a prisoner in their jail yeah. in, in an economy that I've not contributed to at all costs them money you know so yeah they're probably embarrassed they're probably relieved because it's you know another you know one of us gone it's depleting their resources and then because i hadn't committed a crime in england um i couldn't get sent to jail in prison in england fantastic yeah so did you arrive back in england safe and sound then yes and got free government money yes but not Mm. if i didn't do it for long Mm. Uh, i think within within two weeks I was working. Oh, wow, that's fast. Yeah, yeah, within two weeks I was working and within a year I bought a house. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. What about I've Jose? How did he adjust? Not very well. Um, he loved it at first, um, but he couldn't speak English. Um, so that took a while. Um, <clears throat> I was, And the, the roles reversed completely. Um, I was the, I suddenly turned into the breadwinner and Jose was very proud and he was Latin American and it kind of stripped him of everything. The fact that he couldn't provide Mm. for me and take care of Mm. me and that he was at home looking after, you know, my daughter whilst I was out at work paying all the bills and the food Mm. and, you know, I didn't mind at all it was that's you know mm. that's just how the situation was and then but he he really he he struggled with that um and he was there for about three years i think and then he wanted to work we wanted to have kids wanted to get married you know do all those things so we tried to apply for his papers you know it put a strain after three years it was really putting a strain on on our relationship and I knew that if he could just work, it he would be happy again. Yeah. Um, but he couldn't get the papers from England. Mm. We didn't know that at the time. You have to apply for the papers from the country that you're living in. Mm. So we went back to get his papers and they arrested him at Heathrow Airport. No. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Did that, did it continue relationship or did that end it? Um we still speak mm-hmm. um but he got a like a black stamp put on his passport saying that he wasn't allowed to enter the UK for 5 years mm. and i wasn't able to go back mm. to venezuela for i think it was 6 years oh. we appealed it we spent hundreds of pounds appealing it and yeah. lost all that lost all the appeals mm sad isn't it it is sad yeah i mean what a absolutely breathtaking story and it's come to that at the end i know so how is your life now oh wow um i'm so blessed i have a really blessed life um thank you to moments like these the lessons 
that I've learned the strength that I've drawn from those experiences yeah. has made me kind of feel that there's nothing in the world that I can't overcome. Mm. Um, the book was a game changer for me in my life. Um, and my whole life turned topsy-tipsy. Um, it's available on Amazon. Sentence to Hell, Natalie Welsh. Click down in the description box below this video. Um, How did you get this published then? Oh, wow. Um, I'd been writing... I'd been writing bits in in prison because straight away I was like, "This is I've got to write a book mm. about this." So I've got to write. It started off as diaries, and then again I was so focused. Um, I went into is it Waterstones, mm. and I picked up the first autobiography that I could find, which happened to be Cliff Richards. I just picked the first one up and I went straight to the pack page and there was some details on there of like an agent and stuff and I just got an A4 piece of paper and just hand wrote. I didn't even send any of the... I didn't want to bombard, you know. I just hand wrote on an A4 piece of paper a very brief description but with the major points in it and that I wanted to turn it into a book and left my phone number on there um, and I got a phone call about a week later <laughs> <laughs> this is such a compelling story <laughs> yeah I got a phone call about a week later someone came down to see me and then I went to London and this kind of progressed and, and rolled on from, from there wow congratulations thank you so some people watching this video might want to reach out to you. Yeah. Are you available to people on social media or anything? Yeah, um, I'm available on um, Facebook. You can find me under my name, um, Natalie Welsh. Um, if you PM me um, with any questions um, or any queries, um, then I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Um, I have internet problems because of where I'm you know where I live I move around quite a lot and in in the mountains and stuff so my signal dips in and out so if I don't respond to you for a while then please be patient I will respond to everybody um, and I'll put Natalie's link to her Facebook in the description box below this video and to people out there watching this maybe young people who are tempted into the lifestyle the criminal organizations what they do is they know they're going to get so many drugs out of the country and they know they're going to keep the police happy by allowing a fraction of the smugglers to get busted so the police captain can get a promotion and they can make headlines and they can get all tons of money off the Westerners through legal fees and all the other things that you know that the, the, the money basically if you get arrested out there you, you're like a piggy bank for the local justice system and the traffickers use people um as fall guys so they can get the bulk of the drugs through these in, in these operations so for young people who attempted to to smuggle drugs what don't would you say it. to them don't do it um you know i i have drawn some really strong lessons from it but I suffer you know mentally you know mentally um you know I suffer I have post-traumatic stress um I have borderline personality disorder um it's it's not worth it um at all 
Um, nothing good is ever going to come from it. And if it does, it's going to be very short-lived. Um, so anyone that's thinking about doing it, um, don't do it. So please put your questions and comments for Natalie in the comments below this video. Huge thank you to all the subscribers. If you've not subscribed yet, subscription logos in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen. Huge thank you to all people who've donated on PayPal, Patreon, just giving subscribe star. Those links are in the description box to enable us to keep producing these podcasts in a studio at this professional level quality. And if you've got any other guests out there you'd like to see on that have got hard-hitting, harrowing stories um, like this, please let us know. And you, you've told your story absolutely brilliant, Natalie, so give me a hug. Oh, thank you yeah, so you're much, welcome. Sean. Yeah, you've, been, thanks. you've been fantastic. Yeah, you too. Yeah, thank you've you. been so good. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks for watching. Cheers. Thank Bye. you very much. Bye, guys. <laughs>